following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number three of our discussion of Morgoth's Ring as we jump back into the annals of Amon. Uh, and uh, tonight I, we're going to get to the sort of narrative bits uh, when I think we can see the story really developing. Christopher comments on this, of course, uh, how especially when we get to the darkening of Valinor, right? And the story just kind of takes a... Uh, takes over, right? And of course, a lot of you will have recognized, if you know the published Silmarillion well, you'll know that pretty much that whole section is taken verbatim from the Annals of Amon, from that section of the Annals of Amon. Um, so that was the uh, the bit which basically Christopher chose as like the final version of the story of the uh, of the Darkening of Valinor, really. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> Zach is teasing me that I'm dressed like a Vermonter today. So true, Zach. Uh, th uh, this is a shirt my wife recently got me, and it's a, it was a bit of a nostalgic purchase for her because I used to have a, a shirt just like this when we were in college dating. And, uh, I, and Zach, we were in college in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts. So, yeah, it was basically, you know... Uh, Vermont style. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, exactly right. All right. Um, so let's jump straight into it uh, because we, we're, we're going to see how far we can get here to not get to. I'm already going to be adding one day to the Annals of Amon. I'm sure I, I, I don't want to add two necessarily. So, um, okay. So let's go back to the beginning, right? Or at least to the beginning for uh, one very prominent character, right? This was a, a really interesting little moment. And it came to pass that... Sorry, it came to pass that at last... Sorry, I'll come in again. <laughs> and it came to pass that at last the Valar were content, and they were minded to rest a while from labor, and watch the growth and unfolding of the things that they had devised and begun. Therefore, Manway ordained a great feast, and summoned all the Valar and the, and the queens of the Valar into, the, into Almeren, together with all their folk. And they came at his bidding, but Aule, it is said, and Tolkis were weary. For the craft of Aule and the strength of Tolkis had been at the service of all without ceasing in the days of their labor. Now Melkor knew of all that was done, for even then he had secret friends and spies among the Maiar, whom he had converted to his cause. And as of these the chief, as after became known, was Sauron, a great craftsman of the household of Aule. And afar off in the dark places Melkor was filled with hatred, being jealous of the work of his peers, whom he desired to make subject to himself. Therefore he gathered to himself spirits out of the voids of Ea that he had perverted to his service, and he deemed himself strong. And seeing now his time, he drew near again unto Arda, and looked down upon it, and the beauty of the earth in its spring filled him the more with hate. Okay. Um, awesome. So, okay. Um, I... Yeah, and I understand that Rachel's uh, saying uh, I you know I don't I don't know the Silmarillion that well, so I end up not knowing what's different. Yeah, I know that can be really challenging. And Rachel, I often kind of have the opposite problem in a sense that I um when especially a, a part of the text like that when it's really close to the published Silmarillion, which I don't I do know very well, then I'll forget the other side. I'll be like, okay. 
I recognize that it's now almost a, word for word, right? The like the published Silmarillion, but now I'm forgetting how it differs from the version that came before, right? So it's 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 tough to keep track. Um, and I know I often make mistakes and slips uh, with that kind of thing. Now, what do you notice here? We get here, for the first time, the origin story of Sauron, right? The sort of real origin story of Sauron, the, uh, the, final, the final version. Um, this is, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, the first time that we've been told that Sauron was originally one of the Maya, uh, one of the Maya of Aule. Um, that this is, this is new. Yeah, exactly. Christopher Bartlett says, uh, our Tevildo is all grown up. Yes, exactly. Um, where does this come from? Where does this come from? Why? We didn't have this. There was no reference like this to the early days of Sauron in any earlier version of the story? Why not? Sauron existed, right? I mean, he was there from pretty much the beginning in the Numenor story, and that started a while back. That started before the Lord of the Rings was made in the Lost Road days, right? Um, yeah, he certainly has gotten more important in the last 15 years or so, Brian. No question about that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. This is inspired by the Lord of the Rings, right? Why is Aule, why is he connected with Aule? Because he's the ringmaker, right? Because he's the craftsman that we see. So now when Tolkien is backfilling, um, the story and the character of Sauron, you know, uh, Christopher was, um, joking about the fact that, uh, um, you know, about Tevildo, right? Uh, you know, I think we were all kind of amused when we discussed the Book of Lost Tales, how, you know, the role played by, uh, uh, by Sauron in the later story is played by Tevildo, the Prince of Cats, uh, in the Book of Lost Tales, uh, you know, so it's, which is sort of jarring, right? It's not quite fair to say that Sauron was originally a giant cat, right? That's not quite fair because, of course, what actually happened, I think it's more accurate to say that the role in the story originally played by Tevildo, the evil giant cat, was allocated to Sauron later on, right? So uh, it's, it's, not, it's more fun, but not quite as accurate, I think, to say that Tevildo became Sauron exactly. Um, any more than you can quite say that Thu the necromancer sorcerer became Sauron. That's a little easier to maintain, right? Uh, even Sauron from the Lord of the Rings hasn't totally forgotten Thu, right? So we have all of, you know, these several evil characters, right? These several villains uh, from stories that Tolkien has told, right? And they kind of come together into the character of Sauron as he emerges in the Lord of the Rings. But remember, all of that stuff about the um, all that stuff about the the 
the the the, for, the rings of power, right, and the forging of the rings and all that. That all emerged spontaneously during the writing of the Lord of the Rings. You'll remember from our discussion of the Return of the Shadow that when he started writing the sequel to The Hobbit, he didn't have any idea. Not only did he have no idea about the ring and the significance of the ring and the whole ring of power business when he wrote The Hobbit, he didn't even know when he started to write. Uh, that it wasn't until the Ringwraith showed up, right, that he began to figure that out and began to realize, hey this would all work really well if that ring of Bilbo's turned out to be the ring of power and, you know, ring wraiths and everything else. Right. And then it all kind of came together when he comes back then to the Numenor story. So the character of Sauron had already been developed in the Numenor story. And then he kind of doubles down on Sauron, right. Through the Numenor tradition, which also he, as we uh, discussed, was uh, passionately interested during the midst of the writing of the second half, especially of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so Sauron now becomes firmly ensconced, right, as the number two bad guy, right? Morgoth is always going to be the number one, right? Melko was the original bad guy. Uh, and, and of course, it's convenient for Sauron to be second string bad guy, right? Because it makes him less, you know, titanic, right? You know, he's, he's a, he's big, powerful, important, but still lesser. You know, he's not like Satan himself. He's like one of the chiefs of Satan's underlings, right? So, um, that puts him on a different kind of, uh, um, uh, track, right? Uh, on a different sort of level, uh, uh, along with everybody else and makes the rest of the story sort of, uh, sort of simpler, um, in that way. Uh, but anyway, it's this then having landed there, right. With the character of Sauron and having sort of, it seems very likely already made some retroactive decisions about things like Sauron's role, you know, that, uh, like the Tevildo Thu thing and everything, right. Um, that, um, uh, now he's gonna, um, work him through more consistently from the beginning. And so we have, voila, an origin story for Sauron, right? One of the Maiar of Aule, so a craftsman from the beginning. It's interesting that, in a sense, that element of Sauron's character, you could say that that element is the very latest element of Sauron's character to be developed, right? Um, he didn't become a craftsman, until the very end, until the Lord of the Rings itself, right? Until the Ring of Power itself emerged as the primary uh, plot interest, right, of the story. Before then, I can't remember any reference um, to any of the Sauron characters as primarily smiths, you know, craftsmen in that way. Um, but now he decides that's the essence, right? He's going to be one of Aule's people, Um yeah, and that's also true, Brian. Brian says he's also a villain that Tolkien hadn't already devised a death for in the earlier Silmarillion stories. Exactly. Glowering's already accounted for, right? The, um, uh, the, yeah, yeah. No, you're, 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 you're correct. He had not disposed of him, right? He was still, he flees, and so is still a loose end uh, when, uh, uh, when we get to uh, the later days, right? Um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're right, Tony, that they, he still has not forgotten all of the earlier 
story concepts, right? Many of those are still being worked in uh, to Sauron, the sorcery business, right? The, um, uh, the, him as dark sorcerer, uh, even necromancer, right? Of course, he retains that title, right? That name uh, in The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings. Um, you're right, James, that he is attributed knowledge, right? Uh, in Numenor, for instance, he helps the Numenorians with their technology and stuff. Um, so it's not totally alien to him, right? I'm not saying that the craftsmanship thing comes out of the blue. I'm just saying that it was it was clearly not like it was very far from the core of his character at the very least. Um, yeah, exactly, Brandon Minnick. Brandon says Sauron, third age villain at large. Yeah, still at large in the third age. That was kind of a certainly got to be a selling point, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And that is interesting. Tony's reminded of the idea about science and magic being the same thing from a certain point of view. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the thing that I would say, Tony, in fairness, is that the idea of Sauron as like technocrat, you know, Sauron as scientific uh, modernizer, you know, um, was already going out. I mean, I think that the high watermark for that concept of Sauron, Sauron as technological developer, uh, especially in Numenor, that was back in the Lost Road days. That was prior to the uh, to the writing of the Lord of the Rings. Um, when we returned to Sauron and Numenor uh, in the Notion Club paper materials that we were talking about in Sauron Defeated in the last book, um, there was very comparatively little sign of that. He had abandoned that along with the notion that the... Uh, the Numenorians were making, you know, airplanes and, and uh, modern battleships uh, and had uh, artillery and things like that, which was part of the initial conception. For those of you who um, uh, who weren't in those classes with us, th this is what's behind. Uh, you may remember the references in the appendix, uh, in the Akalabeth, to... Um, Sorry, in both the appendix of the Lord of the Rings and the Akalabeth uh, in the Silmarillion, uh, that when the Numenorians, when Arpharazan and the Numenorians show up in Middle Earth to challenge Sauron, he comes and surrenders because his armies run away, right? The original reason for, like, the, the root of that story was when the Numenorians arrived with their artillery batteries. Like, they came with cannon and gunfire. And the, the Middle-earth armies of Sauron were just like, they, were, they, they ran. They, there was no way they could even... It, it's not just like, they are so much more powerful than us, we'll never beat them. It was, these are sorcerous magicians, we can't... They throw death from a distance and we can't possibly compete against them. Um, and they ran off. So that concept... Um, uh, exactly, Christopher. The idea of the navy with cannons and steam that went and attacked... Valinor at the end. Yeah, absolutely. So that idea what received its fullest treatment back in like 1935, right? Back in the Lost Road era. So he was already moving away from that. So I don't want to go too far in thinking about in pursuing that idea of Sauron as like evil magician slash scientist, right? As if Tolkien is really kind of combining those things. Obviously, the connection between wizardry and technology, as is so often with Tolkien, it's not going to get chucked out the window, right? He removes it from Sauron. 
but it's still lying around on the floor, so Saruman can pick it up later on, right? It's all good. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, exactly, Brian. I do think that um, the connection of the Numenor story to the Lord of the Rings story does really put paid to the idea about the extreme technological advancement of the Numenorians. There are still some hints as if the Numenorians did have in some ways simply better technology. Um, it's not only that they... But again, it's it's more like... It's more like the Enta Yahweh Orc, right? It's more like the... Uh, you know, the Anglo-Saxons seeing the ruins of an aqueduct, right? And marveling at what magical arts could have constructed such a thing, right? Um, it, it feels a little bit more like that. What, what, what remains of that element of the Numenorean story and of the Sauron story, uh, be, it feels more like that than it feels like sci-fi, which it briefly did feel like sci-fi uh, in the, back in 1935. Um, Okay. Um, yeah, I, I agree, Christopher, that uh, if Elendil had, like, aircraft carriers uh, and, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a fleet of, uh, uh, you know, fighter jets and things, it, it would make the Battle of Daggerlot a little bit more uh, <laughs> challenging to, to write in some ways. Agreed with that. Um, yeah, Tony, good. The construction of Orthanc. That's an excellent illustration of what I'm talking about. How those, those, those things that still remain, right? Or the reference to, um, uh, that phrase with the hands of giants, right? That they had put, you know, the sea kings had come and placed this here with the hands of giants, right? And I think that's in the description of Orthanc, Tony. Um, yes, there's that, there's that, that sense of, we can't even understand how this was done. Was it sorcery? It might have been. We don't really know. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Now, Josiah, I agree with you. I, I, I don't want to overplay that. You're, uh, Josiah is pointing out that even post-Lord of the Rings, the primary enduring characteristic of Sauron is is deceiver, not craftsman. I agree. I'm, I, so, yeah, I, again, I don't want to overstate my case here. Um, my point is, when... Choosing an origin story, Tolkien chose Aule. He didn't have to do that, right? He could have chosen somebody else, which would have really highlighted the Deceiver. I agree with you about the Deceiver thing. That is a, a dominant characteristic of Sauron pre-fall of Numenor, right? But, but that's not the direction that Tolkien went when he did the origin story. Instead, he goes craftsman, right? And that certainly does fit with what we see of... Uh, of Sauron uh, in uh, in the Lord of the Rings. Is it Helm's Deep? That was my first impulse, but then I doubted myself, Josiah, uh, that it was uh, uh, Helm's Deep, the, the whole by the hands of giants phrase that is coming into my head there. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Um, yeah, Tony, you're right. He could have made him one of Melkor's from the very beginning, but he doesn't, right? Um, instead, he goes... It, and notice, he not only goes out of his way to make him one of the people of Aule, and thus to emphasize his origin as a as a craftsman, um, a great craftsman of the household of Aule, but he also makes him a traitor and a spy, right? Like, 
he makes Sauron a... Well, he makes him despicable from the beginning, to be perfectly blunt, right? It's almost like the Balrogs you can almost respect, right? I mean, they're fighting for the wrong side, but, you know, they sort of they seem to have chosen a side from the beginning and stuck with it, right? Um, and, uh, you know, it's... But whereas Sauron was... Um, uh, was a, a dirty traitor and spy. Yes, like Wormtongue, James. That's a really good point. Um, uh, you're also right, Jennifer, that it... it so I, I, I think we can see both things happening here, uh, Jennifer. Uh, we can see both the fact that he's giving Sauron a higher place to fall from, right? So he's one of the, uh, you know, one of the great... Great Christ, not just a craftsman, right? A great craftsman of the household of Aule. So he's high ranking, right, in the household of Aule. Um, but also, it emphasizes that, like, from the beginning, he was this dirty little quizzling, right? Uh, uh, spy and talebearer and traitor uh, of his, you know, lord and of his kin. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, like the poor orcs, John. Yeah, we'll get to that. We're going to come up. On the orc issue, right in uh, uh, in today's class, definitely. Um, yeah, Veronica um, asked, "Did Melkor even have an assigned realm like the heavens or the oceans or animals or plants? He never got a job, not explicitly, but remember the one thing that Melkor is associated with from the very beginning, from the Ainulindale onwards, is extremes of temperature, right? Um, now that is." associated with his, like, intemperance uh, and and the discord within the music. But I have always thought, and I think that the... Um, uh, I think that the... Uh, the sea text of the Ainulindue seemed to me particularly to emphasize this possibility. If you notice, there's... Um, there's like the four major dudes, right? There's there's Manwe, who's the air, and there's Aule, who's the earth, and there's Olmo, who's the water. What are we missing? Who what isn't there conspicuously not a Valar in charge of? Fire. Exactly. Like, it's conspicuous conspicuous that there is no Vala who is in charge of fire. And remember what, in the, in the earlier version, in the, in the beginning of the New Annals, right? When Manwe and the rest of the Valar show up, when they filled with their love for Arda, descend upon Arda, what do they find? Melkor hanging out already, standing in a field of fire, being like, I did some redecorating, guys. I hope you like it, right? I was going for, like, you know, the circles of hell look, right? What do you think, right? It's, it's me, right? And again, this strong... I mean, he never says the words, right? Um, Tolkien never says the words uh, that, you know, Melkor was associated with fire from the beginning. But, it, I, again, like, I've always kind of suspected that, right? Even just from Silmarillion reading, uh, once I started reading Silmarillion, um, these earlier versions, especially that kind of glimpse, right? Um, which is not wholly unlike Disney's Hades, Jennifer. I can, I can see what you mean there. Um, uh, anyway, that's, um, that seems to me 
very suggestive. And again, he's associated with heat and cold uh, from the beginning as well. Now, Robbie, that's a really good point. Uh, Robbie says, would an Aule be more suited to fire the way that Vulcan is? Aule is certainly very Vulcan-like, right? Um, as far you know, being the craftsman and stuff, uh, he, Aule, uh, isn't lame or anything. Um, but, um, but yeah, there are obvious connections between Aule and Vulcan, who obviously was associated with fires, hence volcanoes, right? But Aule throughout, although he does have some of those uh, obvious similarities to, uh, uh, to Vulcan, throughout the process, like whenever, we're dis- whenever it describes Aule doing something, it's always earth stuff, like forming mountains and building mountain ranges and stuff. That's the kind of thing that Aule is always um, described as doing, right? And so therefore, although the Vulcan thing kind of works to me. Oh, it's the actions he's described seem always to be connected with, uh, uh, with earth, uh, and stone, uh, rather than with fire. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Zach, um, you're right that, uh, the later story with the making of the sun, uh, with earth. And this was even there in the earlier version, to some extent, the story of, of, of Aryan, the Maya, right. The, the, who is associated with fire, uh, and who loved, La, uh, Laralyn, um, and who did not follow Melkor, but even that Zach from the beginning, right. The significance of the fact that Aryan was not a follower of Melkor. It's like, why do you even need to clarify that? Right? You didn't go out of your way to say uh, Tilian, right? Who, by the way, was not a follower of Melkor. Right? Again, I think it's because Melkor fire, and so the fact that Aryan is a fire person who did not who did not go along with Melkor was uh, sort of a big deal. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, no, Robbie, I agree. It's not that... Um, it's not that Aule is exclusively limited to mountains. You're right. He does, um, and we'll see some more of the forging stuff that Aule does. Um, he is associated with forging as well, and he's the, f- you know, even already he's becoming the father of the dwarves. Um, but, and we'll come back to that later. Uh, but again, I'm just talking about thinking of the Ainuindale and of these earlier parts of the, of the, um, of the Silmarillion material, right? Of the legendary material. When it talks about the things that the Valar do and their domains, that's what I'm saying. The, in those places, it seems mostly to associate Aule with mountains and stone. Um, but anyway. Uh, okay. Uh, Sauron. Okay. I think that's mostly what I wanted to talk about. Um, Notice the importance of the word, oops, here I'm just like moving my whole slide around, perverted, right? That he had perverted to his service. This is important. The word perverted is going to be important later on when we get to the orcs, right? Because we can already begin to see not only Tolkien's interest in giving Sauron a clearer fall narrative from the beginning, as we discussed, but also being more insistent upon the theological premise that evil does not create. It only corrupts and perverts that which is already, which is in some way intrinsically good, right? That's what's going to get us into orc problems pretty soon. But again, the use of the word perverted there is already suggestive. I don't, 
I don't think, no, I'm, I'm positive I didn't choose a passage for this, so I'll just throw this out there. We can see this also. There was, this is, it was, was one of those things that I kind of wanted to mention, but there was no passage I could quote because it's like all I wanted to point out was not what isn't there, right? And so that's kind of hard to do in a passage. But uh, anyway, the, uh, the Ungoliante stuff, right? Ungoliante, uh, Ungoliant. Um, in the earlier versions, she is a primeval force of darkness. And like, she's Gloomweaver pretty much from the beginning, right? There's not any clear fall story for her in the earlier versions, right? We can see him working through this same, I think, theological uh, issue with Ungoliant when he comes back around to her, right? He made her more of a... He gave her more of a fall narrative as well, right? More of a corruption uh, narrative. Uh, George asks if Aryan would have been a Balrog if she had followed Melkor. Well, I don't know that for sure, George, um, but that's sure what we went with in uh, Silm Film. So in uh, Silmarillion Film Project in season one, when we told the story of the Valar from the Ainulindale through the darkening of Valinor, uh, no, that was season two, through the, uh, the chaining of Melkor is what I meant. Um, uh, we decided exactly that. We had a, a really fun scene reminiscent of, uh, of uh, what's his name? Abdiel uh, from Paradise Lost, uh, where Melkor has hit like the Balrogs who were originally spirits of fire. And she's one of them. Right. Um, and he's going to he, he's like recruiting the Balrogs uh, who were originally these angelic winged creatures. Right. Uh, and he's recruiting them to help him destroy the lamps in, in our version of the story, uh, our more detailed version of the story for TV, theoretically TV. And uh, and we had Aryan refuse to go along with him, right? So she separated from the rest of the Balrogs at that point, and then the rest of the Balrogs fell uh, and became creatures of shadow and flame. And of course, their wings were destroyed um, uh, so that they no longer have wings anymore, which was kind of an inside joke in some film project. But anyhow, yeah. So, George, we don't have any proof for that, but that's totally what we went with when we did our adaptation because I love that concept. Um, But uh, anyway, okay. Exactly, Tony. This has to line up with what Elrond says about nothing being evil in the beginning, even Sauron. Absolutely. That um, there are two major places where that theological premise is stated very explicitly in The Lord of the Rings. That's one, Tony. The other, of course, is by Frodo on the stairs of Kirathungal when he tells Sam about how the orcs have to eat and drink because uh, the shadow can't make any real new things. Uh, he can only... Uh, uh, you know, twist and corrupt what is already there. Um, so that premise is firmly established now by the Lord of the Rings. And again, this is one place where we can see Tolkien is now kind of working that out. And I'm not saying that back in the old days, the Legendarium didn't have any theology, right? That's a ridiculous statement. And yet there were inconsistencies with its theology. And even more than there were internal inconsistencies... I would say rather than internal inconsistencies, what there were were a lot of questions that the stories just didn't particularly care to answer. Like, it just wasn't a big deal, right? Um, There was very little theological exposition involved in the original stories. Now, um, he has worked that out. But again, so, sorry, I was saying not only was there uh, not that kind of explicit theological consistency, there also was significantly less consistency between what theology there was and Catholic theology. Um, And 
it is certainly one thing that happens over the course of the Lord of the Rings is that the theology of this world becomes more Catholic. Um, it, uh, it, it gets there. Yeah, Tony, you're right. Treebeard's statement about trolls also, or related to the formation of trolls, uh, also states that same theological pr- principle. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yep. Exactly, Veronica. You are precisely anticipating the orc issue that uh, Tolkien is lining himself up for uh, within uh, a few slides, if we can get there. So let's, in the interest of that, carry on. Thus there awoke in the world the two trees of Valinor, of all growing things the fairest and most renowned, whose fate is woven with the fate of Arda. The elder of the trees was named Telperion, and its blossoms were of shining white, and a dew of silver light was spilled from them. Laurelin the younger tree was called, its green leaves were edged with gold, and its flowers were like to clusters of yellow flame, and a rain of gold dripped from them to the ground. From those trees there came forth a great light, and all Valinor was filled with it. Then the bliss of of the Valar was increased, for the light of the trees was holy and of great power. So that, if aught was good, or lovely, or of worth, in that light its loveliness and its worth were fully revealed, and all that walked in that light were glad at heart. But the light that was spilled from the trees endured long, ere it was taken up into the airs, or sank into the earth for their enrichment. Therefore, of its abundance, Varda was wont to gather great store, and it was hoarded in mighty vats nigh to the green mount. Thence the Maiar would draw it, and bring it to Frith and Field, even those far removed from, Val- from Valmar, so that all regions of Valinor were nourished and waxed ever fairer. Okay, now, here's what I'm interested in in this passage. In this passage, of course, we, it's easy to say there's no fundamental change from the earlier story here, right? He is taking the myth of the trees... So there are several mythic concepts from the earlier legendarium that are being continued here, right, without any significant change. The significance of the trees. Even the liquid light, which is literally dripping from Laurelin's flowers, right, and which, from the beginning, has been gathered in liquid form into vats, right, so that there are buckets of liquid light sitting around being used for irrigation, right, um, in Valinor. Uh, <laughs> yes, James Stevens says, Frith on a hill. Uh, yeah, I, uh, can, uh, Frith in a field, I was, uh, is exactly what I was thinking. Sorry, Watership Down joke, for those of you who don't know Watership Down. Um, uh, Frith on a field is all I can think of. I'm Somebody says that. that actually, that's actually a line from the book. Frith in the field. Frith in a field. I think it's Bigwig. Uh, but anyway, um, but, um, Okay. On the one hand, as I say, elements of the myth, you know, this is this is not a new mythology, right? It's not fundamentally uh altered. But do you see the difference? Can you feel the difference? I think there's a very distinct difference. And the way I'd characterize it, I'm and keep in mind, please, I'm not when I say things like I'm about to say, I'm not 
pretending like I can read Tolkien's mind. I'm not even making an earnest theory to say, I believe, I am theorizing that these words crossed Tolkien's mind. Like, I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I am trying to articulate what appears to me the impulse. What is the story of the story, right? What is the direction that the story is being moved? And if, to try to characterize that, I would say it's like Tolkien is asking how questions and what questions. So he takes the same mythic concepts, right? The light of the trees, the liquid light of the trees. He's taking the blessing of Valinor. That was part of the mythic idea before, right? That Valinor is blessed and things in Valinor are just like, it's, and there's, there's just, there's no comparison, right? There's, there's Amon and there's Middle-earth and Middle-earth is in darkness and they have the light over there and there's, there's, things are different. Remember that there was a vague kind of gesture towards a sort of mechanism Remember that there was there were references back in the old version to air, right? That there was something different about the air of, Val, of Valinor compared to the air of Middle-earth. And the children of Iluvatar, the elves, need the air of Middle-earth, right? Like they can't cut themselves off from the air of Middle-earth entirely. That's why they live in the Calakiria, right? Um and on this sort of near side so that they can like still get some of the air of middle earth wafting in their direction. But then they can kind of, you know, like take a deep breath of middle earth air and then they can go and live their like, you know, anaerobic existence, <laughs> not literally anaerobic, but you see what I mean? Like they can immerse themselves. It's like that. Yeah. It's more like that. It's like they immerse themselves in the like gorgeous, warm bliss of Valinor, but they've got to go up for air every now and again, right? Um, so in this way, elves are like, you know, right whales or something. I don't know. But anyway, uh, my metaphors are getting worse and worse as we go. Um, but again, so th there, were, there were references to that. Like there was something about the air. And similarly, when the elves moved back to Middle-earth, right, when they went, then the air changed them. Right. Um, and then after the sun comes up and that changes the air more. And so it, it makes things change more quickly. And so that's why the elves fade and diminish in Middle Earth, because it's all about the it's all about the air. Right. OK, so. Um, <laughs> yeah, they do. They do need their version of the canned air from Spaceballs, Robbie. Or I can now, of course, I'm I'm imagining like one of the cunning Noldor developing like, a, you know, like tanks of air. It's like you can live in Val in Valmar for months and, you know, for years at a time with your handy, you know, uh, tank and, you know, mask. Anyway, you know, just like take a pull on this eventually, you know, every once in a while. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And Tony. Yeah, Tony is making jokes about Bilbo's line about it smells like elves. That's legit, Tony. I, that's, I think, what actually was in his mind. It's not for no reason that Bilbo says it smells... I don't think he's just saying that elves have particularly pungent, though apparently pleasant, body odor, right? Uh, it's like the air of the Valley of Rivendell is qualitatively different and Bilbo can tell right when he's descending into the descending into the valley of the elves he's like yeah oh, smells like elves right this is elf air down here right um uh yeah no <laughs> I am I'm a hundred percent convinced that like the that line the smells like elves line 
is connected like indirectly in Tolkien's mind with all this business about the air and the elves uh, back in um, uh, back in the other thing. And Stephen, I was when I mentioned about the tanks of air, I was totally imagining uh, Algre and the the um, the canister that Ransom is given in Out of the Silent Planet. Smell on this, uh, you would say to one of the Noldor. Um, but um, anyway, OK, uh, so. Um, yeah, no, exactly, Jennifer. The smell, of, it's exactly not like the smell of Edward Cullen from Twilight. That is precisely what I think the smell of elves is not. Yes, yes, that, that's, you've got it. Um, anyway, okay, but back to this passage. Tolkien seems to be asking, and again, remember my disclaimers, Tolkien seems to be asking a kind of question He's not changing his mythology, but he's asking a question, questions of his mythology that he never asked or certainly never answered in the earlier versions, right? Okay, when we say that Valinor was blessed, right, that it was in some sense the blessed realm, how? What are the mechanics of the blessing of Valinor, right? How exactly, what is... Where does the blessing come from and how does it get like worked into things and how does that function, right? And he has his answer. The trees, the light, the liquid light from the trees, the vats, those are all elements that were all there in the early mythology. But now we get that second paragraph. But the light that was spilled from the trees endured long ere it was taken up into the airs that's why the air is different, right? It's like tree light vapor, not just the light of the trees in the sense like it's right around here, right? But no, like the the light of the the liquid light of the trees has evaporated and entered the air. So the air is now different. You're like inhaling bits of tree light, right? When you're in just like you're in, inhaling water vapor. Okay. Uh, or sank into the earth for their enrichment. Therefore, of its abundance, Varda was wont to gather great store, and it was hoarded in mighty vats nigh to the green mound, almost exactly like was said in the Book of Lost Tales. But now, thence the mire would draw it and bring it to Frith in the field. Sorry, to Frith in field, even those far removed from Valmar. So now we have now we have the Valinorian uh, uh, liquid light um, insta blessing irrigation system, and I'm I'm sort of teasing Tolkien for this, right? Um, and I'm not trying to make fun of him, but you see what I mean, right? You see the um, you see the emphasis here. And this, this, it's like he's answering a question which he never even really asked before. But maybe that's not fair, right? If we think about it, that business that I was just alluding to about the difference of the air in Valinor and in Middle-earth was there from the beginning, right? So to some, to some extent, um, uh, to some extent, it uh, was... Um, uh, to some extent, he was always like, it's almost like that question was there in the back of his mind, right? Like even back in the old days when he was just doing a sort of a more kind of free floating mythology, right? Uh, he still seemed not to be able to constrain himself entirely from asking a, a why and how questions, right? And so he he kind of worked that in, but it was not very systematic. Now we begin to say, okay, this, this is systematic, right? This makes sense. Now we've got an explanation. Now we know the mechanism underlying 
the blessing of Valinar, right? Um, and that, of course, serves within Tolkien's new mythological economy not to undermine the mythology, but to boost the mythology, right? Now we can see, because we understand the mechanism, uh, far from undermining the mythology, now we can see the trees are even more mythically powerful than they were before, right? Now we know, uh, now we understand more perfectly the role that the trees had in the blessing. It's, in the old days, you could have been forgiven, for thinking that the primary function of the trees of Valinor was just that they were awful purdy, right? I mean, they were nice and they, they, I mean, the light was gorgeous, you know, and it was like, man, right? But, um, um, but we didn't know the, now that we know the mechanism, it's like, okay, so you can see how the very root of the blessing of Valinor itself was in the trees, right? Um, and that, to some extent, the lingering blessing of Valinor, even after the darkening, um, is still like a memory of the trees themselves. Um, and that's really cool. So, so it's not that he's it's not that it's getting less mythological at all or again, even that he's changing the fundamental mythology. And yet we can see his methodology changing significantly. Right. We can see him, if not asking new questions, facing those questions squarely, right, investing in those questions, whereas those passages about the heirs were kind of tenuous before they would get kind of he'd kind of toss in a reference to the air like, you know, and of course, like they needed the air of Middle Earth and had to return to it every now and again. And it's like, really? How? Why? But that would just be like a stray sentence chucked in at the end of a paragraph about the elves living on, uh, you know, in core. Right. Um, anyway. Uh, and again, this seems to me very clearly to follow in the path of that the now the new direction in which the narrative is growing, or rather not the new direction the story is taking, but the new shape of the story, right? The new kind of process in which the st that the story is using to get to uh, the old destinations. Um, yeah, Tony. Tony is thinking about uh, Treebeard's comment about how the air is changing, right? Yeah, uh, lines like that really come to sound different, don't they, when you read some of this other stuff, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, good. Um, and George is thinking about, uh, uh, you know, is, he says, is that maybe how the last fruits of the trees could bloom even after they died? Uh, there was still light in the soil. In some ways, I mean, we're, that was, you know, the direct intervention of uh, uh, several of the Valar. Um, but nevertheless, you know, we can kind of see that it does sort of work in that way. And so like the sort of the final distillation, right, of the of this essence. We'll see if we can uh, see that talk about that passage a little bit when we get uh, to the there's no way we're getting to the sun and moon tonight. I can already tell you that um, if we can get to Ungoliant uh, and the darkening, I'll be proud of myself tonight. OK. Uh, I'm going to pause to indulge Christopher's pet interest here. 
um, which is defining what, and again, I'm not trying to diss it. I like, I, I totally, I think it's interesting sort of, I think it's a little bit interesting. I, and I don't make, I don't try to pretend that my own lack of interest in this question is anything but a a fault in myself. Um, But this is absolutely Christopher's number one interest here. A possible explanation of a sort may be hinted at in the words cited above from the Annals of Amon, paragraph 17. Melkor gathered spirits out of the voids of Ea. It may be that, although the Annals of Amon is not far distant in time from the last version D of the Ainuindale, my father's conception did not in fact now accord entirely with what he had written there. So he's talking about the distinction between what Ea is in the at the end of the latest version, version D of the Ainuindale, and what Ea is in the allusions that are made to it in the annals. My father's... Con- right, uh, right, okay. He was now thinking of Arda as being set within an infinite vast... an indefinite vastness in which all creation is comprehended. So Arda is set within an indefinite vastness in which all creation is comprehended, rather than of a bounded Ea itself set amid the void. So is there Ea and void around it? Or is Arda part of a void, and that void itself is part of creation? Like, Ea is the whole business, count including the void on the outside of it. Then, beyond the walls of night, the bounds of Arda stretch the voids of Ea. But this suggestion does not, of course, clear up all the problems, ambiguities, and apparent contradictions in the cosmology of the later period, which have been discussed earlier. Yes, yes, indeed, he did discuss that earlier. Um, as I said, that this is what exactly he meant by Ea is, I do think, an important question. Um, not my favorite question, but you can see what he's. But I did want to at least like acknowledge Christopher's interest in this, not just out of respect for him, but also because it does connect to this, to these questions that we've been asking as well, right? Um, one way. Um, one way that I would sort of characterize the issue here would be to say um, what do you do with space? Right? Um, The image of Arda globed within the void, right? Makes it sound like a floating planet. Or maybe galaxy or something. I don't know, right? But the more important thing to me, the main thing I want to do with Christopher's speculations here is kind of take two or three steps back from it and say, okay, big picture here, big picture. This is the question that he's asking, right? He, Tolkien, is, was not interested in these questions before. Um, he used these, one of the reasons for the problems, ambiguities, and apparent contradictions uh, that Christopher is talking about, those things, the ambiguities, contradictions, seem to me to have their root in the fact that Tolkien wasn't really himself at all very interested in this question. The Embarcanta shows that he is interested in how the cosmos is set up. I'm not saying it's not like he ever thought of that. But this question of, okay, that which we call space, and of course you'll remember how important this was to C.S. Lewis with the business about the heavens in Out of the Silent Planet, which we just discussed. Um, space, the heavens, is that part of Arda or not? 
is that outside. So when you go through the doors of night, are you in space? Or is space inside the walls of night? Like where? So it's, it's less a question of what counts as Arda and more a question of what are the boundaries or even what are the relationships between Ea and Arda and modern cosmology, right? Modern conceptions of the universe, the world, right? Uh, of course, it's also true that there are plenty of problems, ambiguities, and apparent contradictions in how we, still to this day, use the words like those, like world or universe, right? Um, so, anyway, that's... Um, I think one of the things that we can see, one of the chief ways in which this particular in inquiry that interests Christopher so much is important, definitely important for us to consider in these larger questions that I've been asking, it shows that Tolkien, I think, is wrestling with these questions, right? He's trying to define things in which he had no interest, really, before uh, uh, in defining. Um, hence the flat world thing, right? It was fine. Um, Okay. I love the preamble. Uh, you know, I've said several times that uh, I have, I found, certainly in the Aino Lindelay, I found the presence of the frame material and the moments in which uh, Pengalod, the narrator, uh, who is reciting what Rumil wrote or transmitting the stories originally uh, transmitted to him by Rum through Rumil, um, how transformative those references were for my understanding of the Aino Lindale. Um <clears throat> So I am really interested in the preamble to the annals here as well. Here begin the annals of Amon. Rumil made them in the elder days, and they were held in memory by the exiles. Those parts which we learned and remembered were thus set down in Numenor before the shadow fell upon it. Who's we? Who's we? Those parts which we learned and remembered were thus set down in Numenor before the shadow fell upon it. In the Aino Indelay, in the Aino Indelay, what was the frame? What was the narrator, the narration frame? How did it work? Rumil wrote it, right? Rumil was the source of the Aino Indelay material. Pengaloth was transmitting it. To whom? Yeah, Alfwina. Alfwina. Who is a dude, right? A man, a human, who visited the elves in Elvenholm, right? Alfwina is the... So Alfwina was from the beginning of Alfwina even back before he was Alfwina, right? Back when he was, uh, uh, when he was, uh, what's his name? Ariel. Um, 
was a link not between the elves and like the third age, right? Because of course, back in those days in the Book of Lost Tales, there certainly was no such thing as the third age, right? Um, what was Alfwina the link to? Yes. Yes. Valinor, these stories, and our world, right? Alfwina was the transmitter into contemporary human history of these stories. So the reason why garbled versions of the stories of the elves and of the Valar remain in circulation, have remained in circulation, right? Even though, again, these are very garbled versions, right? It's because Alfwina brought them back. So yes, ultimately, Marie, it is to modern England uh, that Alfwina is the link, right? And the Alfwina character is retained in the Ainuindale frame. It is the explicit, the first person narrator of the Ainuindale is Pengalov speaking to Alfwina, who's going to take it back during Anglo-Saxon times, going to take the Book of Lost Tales or whatever it's going to be called, right, back to England or what will eventually be England and the memory will be retained, right? But here, in the revised preamble to the annals, we have a turn. It's no longer Rumil Pengalad Alfwina. Now we get Numenor thrust into the middle of that, right? The first couple steps sound familiar. Pengalov is not named here in this passage, right? Here begin the annals of Amon. Rumil made them in the elder days, and they were held in memory by the exiles. So that's where Pengalov comes in. Because Pengalov is an elf of Gondolin, so uh, the fact that Pengalov can transmit the stories that were made by Rumil originally tells us that uh, you know, he's, so he's one of the exiles. And so, um, yes, okay. Um, but to whom is Pengalov? Assuming that Pengalov is still the person involved, which I assume that he is, right? Um, yeah. And Josiah, you're absolutely right that Alfwina and Elendil are linked in the Lost... Well, not in the Lost Road. Well, yes, in the Lost Road, ultimately, but primarily in the Notion Club papers, right? That's when it really... That link really sort of flowers, right? Um, yes, so that the idea of a memory not just of the Elvish stories transmitted to Alfwina, but of Numenor itself, um, of the fall of Numenor, a sort of a cultural memory uh, of the fall of Numenor, as evidenced in things like King Horn and other poems and stories like that. These are all things that we talked about in the last class on the uh, Unsound and Defeated. Um, yeah, so you're right, Josiah, that Alfwina gets connected with Numenor uh, there, right? Um, yes, exactly, Veronica. Both names, Elendil and Alfwina, mean elf friend, which of course is one of the central plays of that whole 
uh, sort of generational Numenorean time travel thing, right, which began in the Lost Road and gets taken up in the Notion Club papers. Okay, so who are we? Who's the we? Who is writing this text according to this preamble? I don't think it can be men living in Numenor because it says those parts which we learned and remembered were thus set down in Numenor before the shadow fell upon it, which I don't think is how a Numenorean like living in Numenor would describe it. It is, of course, possible that one of the post-Numenorean, like, yes, like the Gondorians, that would fit. That would fit. It could be written by the Dunedain. Those parts which we learned and remembered were thus set down in Numenor before the shadow fell upon it. That's possible. Yeah, Christopher, I wonder. Is it possible? Is it remotely possible that... Is it remotely possible that Bilbo, as... Narrator, translator, scribal figure is beginning to creep in. I'm not saying that he's necessarily picturing Bilbo here exactly, but doesn't this sound like, for instance, things that we see in the prologue to the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Um, using the first person plural to refer to hobbits. And the things that we learned from the Numenorians and that were handed down to us, uh, you know, things that were retained from Numenor of old, transmitted through to them by the Dunedain, of course. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make any, like, firm claims about that, um, but, I, but I wonder. Um, I certainly agree, Christopher, that we are meant to think that Bill Bowes' translations from the Elvish contain the Silmarillion material. Absolutely. Um, and uh, that idea was there from the very first draft of that, as you'll remember, in the War of the... No. Was it the War of the Ring? Or was it the beginning of Sound Undefeated? I can't remember. But anyway, in the draft material of the, vo of the journey home, right, uh, in the first, uh, the first draft of Many Partings, Bilbo gives Sam his manuscripts. His translations from the Elvish were his gift to Sam, not the bag of gold, the last drop of the Smaug vintage in case he thinks about getting married. That was a revision. The very first impulse that Tolkien had when he had Bilbo giving out presents and his present to Sam w was the translations from the Elvish. Um, so, um, yeah. It, now, Josiah... I'm certainly ready to agree that the we indicates a sort of a mannish perspective, though. Um, that seems to be most plausible as well. Again, I, I don't I wouldn't go hard after the idea that he's thinking about Bilbo and hobbits. 
that hobbits are the we that Tolkien intended when he wrote this. I wouldn't make that claim. But the possibility seems to be being opened toward in that direction in ways that it was not in the Ainuendale, right? And remember the Ainuendale version, uh, the C and D versions of the Ainuendale were written prior to this, um, like a couple of years prior to this, during the writing of the Lord of the Rings, like while the writing of the Lord of the Rings was still going on. So um, I, I think that we can, this seems to me to be a shift from that um, Ainuendale narration uh, towards this, and this, and the shift seems to me opening the door, at least, uh, for Bilbo, eventually. Okay, a uh, few notes about the changing cast of the Valar as we move forward. No Lord had Nienna, Manway's sister, nor Nessa, the Evermaid. I love that title, by the way, the Evermaid. Sorry. The wife of Tolkis was Leia the Young, and the wife of Lorien was Este the Pale. Christopher Tolkien then adds, the text then continues as before, so that the two who do not sit in the councils of the Valar are the highest among the Maiar, uh, and are the highest among the Maiar, become Leia and Este. There is no trace of this development in any other text, but Leia appears again in the Annals of Amon as the text was typed. Okay. Um... Yeah. Um, okay, sorry, I was just looking at a couple of comments that you guys were just making still about the Wii stuff. Um, see, James, I don't think it can be elves. Sorry, let me just, just peek back for a second. Yeah, they were held in memory by the exiles, those parts which we learned and remembered. See, I think that's in distinction. The exiles held in memory the annals as they were made by Rumo in the Elder Days. But we, by contrast, learned and remembered parts of it, right? And those parts that we did learn and we do remember were set down in Numenor later on, which is being spoken of in the, I think, significant past tense here. Before the shadow, so way back in Numenor, before the shadow. So, what I'm giving you here is derived from the bits that we remember that we set down in Numenor in the old days, which in turn were bits from the exiles, which they held in memory the original version from Rumil. So I see it as fairly distant from the elves in that way. Um, yeah. Yeah, Matt, you're right. Ever made equals always a bridesmaid. Uh, yeah, true. But again, interesting. You know, as we mentioned last time, the idea of the ver of a virgin goddess, right, which is a, a fairly common uh, concept, um, is not in the sort of later mythology at all, right? But we see that there was that impulse there, uh, and Nessa was it, as long as there was still somebody else around to marry Tolkis, uh, right? Which in this case was Leia the Young. Uh, who has a brief life, but then gets uh, collapsed together. Um, so we end up having sort of too many minor princesses here, too many minor female figures. Um, and uh, and Este, of course, is going to get a promotion and be named among the Valar. And so this idea of Leia and Este being only the highest among the Maiar 
uh, is going to uh, uh, is going to is going to vanish um, as well, of course, as the idea of uh, the ever made. Right. Um, there is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Good. Um, yeah. Jennifer Ewing says wallflowers. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of action here, right? There's 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 not like a whole lot of jobs that they have uh, these female figures, right? At the sort of lower end of the uh, of the the Valian hierarchy, right? Um, and so it isn't much of a shock, I think, that he ends up kind of consolidating them a little bit uh, because. Uh, yeah, they don't. But interesting to me is that in the, that consolidation, he does eliminate one of the roles that he had insisted on, which is the ever made business. Right. Um, uh, and it's just interesting to me that Este Uinen, we talked about her demotion already. Right. Which I was suggesting might have something to do with the changing conception of Ali's, of Olmo's relationship, rather, with the ocean. Um, but, um, uh, but now Este, being eventually, though still not yet, promoted, uh, is you know, a contrary motion there. So it wasn't just about the uh, uh, any kind of like across the board de-emphasizing of the f- of the the women among the the Valar. Um, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jennifer says, "What I mean is, there are too many women and not enough men to dance with at the ball." Uh, yes, too many ladies, uh, as uh, Elizabeth Bennett would say. Uh, yep, exactly. Um, Hmm. Parallels between Olmo and Mr. Darcy. Discuss. Okay, moving on. But here's a bit which still doesn't go away. With these great powers came many other spirits of the same kind, begotten in the thought of Eru before the making of Ea, but having less might and authority. These are the Maiar, the people of the Valar. They are beautiful but their number is not known, and few have names among elves or men. There are also those whom we call the Valarindi, who are the children of the Valar, begotten of their love after their entry into Ea. They are the elder children of the world, and though their beginning began with Ea, yet they are of the race of the Ainur, who were before the world. They have, no pa- they have power and rank below that of the Valar only. So the Valarindi... Are st- we still have this middle category, right? You've got the Valar, you've got the Maiar, and you've got the Valarindi clearly between them, having power and rank only below that of the Valar and still clearly above that of the Maiar, even though the Maiar were there, right? They are begotten in the thought of Eru before the making of Ea. So in the timeless halls, the Maiar were there for the making of the music, Right, but the Valarindi have their origin within Ea. Their being began with Ea, though. What does that mean? And they're of the race of the Ainur, 
who were before the world. Okay. The... reference to the children of the Valar back in the old days, Book of Lost Tales days, right, was pretty casual. I mean, like, it was it was almost like a given that um, uh, the Valar had kids. I mean, they got married. They had kids, right? It's like, what happens, you know, when two Valar Two of the Valar love each other very much, right? I mean, it's, that's like how it works. Um, uh, okay. He hasn't abandoned that yet, right? All of them had kids. Morgoth had a kid. Remember, who is Melko's kid? Anyone remember who Melko's kid was back in the old days? Gothmog. Exactly. Gothmog was the son of Melko uh, back in the old days. Good times. Um, but yeah, exactly, Brian. It's just like most polytheistic systems, right? It's no big deal. Of course it happens, right? But you don't ask questions of those kinds. of. I mean, like, think again about Greek mythology. Footnote. Some people might scold me for alluding to Greek mythology as often as I am here and say, oh, that's a classic blunder. Tolkien was more influenced by Norse mythology than he was by Greek mythology. Absolutely true. He was deeply influenced by Norse mythology. But I always feel that people who say we should resist thinking about Greek mythology are totally forgetting a huge chunk of Tolkien's life, right? We're talking about a man who could spontaneously compose orations in Greek, right, who came to Oxford at, in the classics program, right? Um, this is a guy who knew the Greco-Roman classics backwards and forwards in Greek and Latin, right? Uh, so to say like, oh, yeah, Greek stuff is right out. It's all Norse all the time in Tolkien's mythology are being very selective and I think very appropriately so. Um, anyway, Okay, uh, so uh, back to the Greeks. When you're reading Greek mythology and they're getting married and they're having kids, you don't ask any questions about this kind of thing, right? I mean, look, if you even ask questions about the, like, um, I mean, as I remember asking questions when I was a kid, you know, questions like, why didn't Cronus digest his kids? Like, he ate them and swallowed them and then, like, barfs them back up again an unknown amount of time later? And wouldn't that have been uncomfortable? And, like, I mean, I remember being deeply puzzled by this when I was a kid. Um, but my point is that the myths themselves are totally untroubled by things like this, right? It's just not the kind of question they're interested in answering, right? You can ask that kind of question all you like um, of the Greek myths. They're not going to give you an answer, right? Uh, and even, of course, as we have abundant explanation, right? Or abundant, um, not explanation, abundant uh, evidence, right? Uh, 
of the genetic compatibility of Greek gods and humans, right? So that they function as like, in some sense, like humans, but they're not exactly like humans, though it doesn't exactly explain wherein the difference lies and everything else. That's just kind of the world that the, that, that mythology lives in, and it's fine. I would add Norse mythology also does not... Is, does not demonstrate much interest in answers like that, except I would say one has to have an even more profound lack of curiosity about cause and effect in order to go with the flow in Norse mythology than one does in Greek. In Greek mythology, you just have to kind of accept the fact that the gods are kind of like people, but not, right? In some not wholly well-defined way, Right. In Norse mythology, you've got to deal with people giving birth to things out of their armpits and stuff like that, right? Which also the myth seems not the least bit interested to explain how or why that works, right? Um, exactly, Marie or Loki's children, right? Best not knowing. Just don't ask, right? Absolutely. So anyway, uh, my point is when the children of the Valar... <laughs> I almost said when the children of the Valar came out, then I'm like, wait, let me back that sentence up a little bit. When the children of the Valar were mentioned back in in the Book of Lost Tales, um, they uh, again, it it was just it was part of that whole world. Like we were clearly in that kind of mythology, right? In that kind of world, Uh, you know, as far as like logical cause and effect is concerned we were st- we still were operating on a kind of don't ask don't tell basis right we're not anymore i mean look at this explanation right this is a this is a description which is in some ways not in all but in some ways much more interested in that kind of question right um yeah, good. Caden points out the question of like, uh, you know, so I explain again how Athena jumped out of Zeus's head. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, the question of, okay, the Valar could have kids like they gave birth to children. And so, so there's some of these folks there are in some real and literal sense, begotten and conceived, born to term and birthed by the Valar? And here his answer to that question is yes. He's not yet decided, okay, I'm just going to nix this whole thing, right? Um, But he's explaining now in some detail... So the Valorindi and the Maya... Now, that that, that distinction was totally not clear um, back in the older days, right? Now we have some distinctions, right? Some explanations. Um, I still don't know about the... I mean, okay, like the Valar love each other and beget children, but it's actually begotten of their love after their entry into Ea. Their love of each other, presumably. That is, the mommy and the daddy loving each other very much. But um, but it also seems to me to suggest their love of Ea itself, right? Like, I wouldn't be shocked. After reading that sentence, I wouldn't be shocked to hear that, like, one of the Vala 
participated in some parthenogenesis, right? Like the love of that for for AI itself bore fruit and took shape as one of the Valorindi, no spouse required, right? That wouldn't seem to me to be wholly alien to this kind of thing, though he doesn't go there, right? Nancy is floating the theory that that must be who Tom Bombadil is. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Uh, all right. So think back to the um, irrigation system. Right. The direction of Tolkien's thought that I think we're seeing, one of the patterns that we're seeing here. Um, the guy who is coming up with the atmospheric like the evaporation and irrigation of the light of the trees into Valinor as the mechanism of the blessing of Amon, that guy, uh, I think, is unlikely to be permanently content with the Valar just have kids somehow, right? And I think, because of course, what it raises, honestly, is the question of Okay, so what is the relationship between the Valar and their bodies? I mean, if you're going to have kids, okay. Like, if they were incarnate, they'd have kids. All right, sure, right. Uh, but they're not incarnate, exactly. Like, they can incarnate themselves, but that's not... Is that what their kids are? So are their kids then flesh? Do they have a hroa? Right? Do they, I mean, are they... Or they not? And if uh, anyway, you see what it, like you, there are still unresolved issues here. You can see them moving in that direction, but there are still unresolved issues. And again, I cannot imagine the dude who came up with the with the Valinorian, uh, you know, luminescent irrigation system, being content to leave this in this state forever, right? And I don't think, and I think in the end, he's uh, he's not gonna leave it in this state. In the end, you know. He uh, he's going to weave it. Now, Josiah, I agree. Yes, that's the other passage. The their being began with Ea does seem to imply that the love of the Valar for Arda, which remember has been emphasized from the very very beginning, that's why the Valar descend into Arda is because of their love, right? So yes, it does sort of suggest. That's the other thing. Thank you, Josiah, for pointing that out. That that was the other thing that was suggesting to me that uh, the conception of the Valarindi, that is the the generation, the actual. Uh, uh, origin uh, of the Valorindi, not the idea of them, um, is connected not with the love of the spouses for each other, primarily or exclusively, but with their love for Arda. Anyway, okay. Um, and then, Josiah, yeah, we're going to have Luthien as the perpetual wrench in that system. Um, there will be several elements of the mythology. I, and this is something we're going to see on several occasions, right? Where Tolkien has these two impulses, right? And I think we've already seen them. I think even just in tonight's passages, we can see them fairly clearly. The impulse to retain the mythology, right? He doesn't want to change it. He doesn't want to undermine it. He wants to, 
uh, he still has not given full expression to that mythology. He hasn't published that mythology. It's that mythology he wants to publish. He's not abandoning it. But he wants to make it work. He wants to make it consistent. He now has this new impulse to make it all fit in ways that it didn't have to fit before. And Josiah, yeah, there are going to be several times where those two things are just going to come into collision. And he's going to be confronted with a choice. He has to ditch one or the other, right? With the Valorindi, the mythology is going to go. That bit of the mythology is going to go. And we don't lose too much there, right? Take the Valorindi that we really needed, like Aonwe, promote them to be Major Maiar, and we're good, right? Um, Aonwe, of course, was the son of Manwe, just like Gothmog was the son of uh, Milko. Um, uh, anyway, uh, so similarly, oh, I'm blanking on her name. Oh, that's horrible. The handmaiden of uh, Varda. Somebody remind me. You guys will remember. Um, Ilmari. Ilmari, thank you, Murray. I know you'd remember. Um, uh, she is another one specifically mentioned as the daughter of Varda uh, in the older version. So again, we can keep those characters around, right? But the concept of the Valorindi, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna just eliminate that, right? But Josiah, as you say, what about Luthien and her mom? It's an issue, right? And he's not willing to get rid of that. And of course, the orc problem. Uh, is going to be is I would put in this similar um, category. Um, exactly, Brian. There are some elements he doesn't give up, even if it can't really be perfectly reconciled uh, within the uh, the new sort of more self consistent, more thoroughly articulated mythology that he's building. All right, let's keep going. Nienna. I said last time we'd get to Nienna a little bit more. For it is said that even in the music, Nienna took little part, but listened intently to all that she heard. Therefore she was rich in memory and far-sighted, perceiving how the themes should unfold in the tale of Arda. But she had little mirth, and all her love was mingled with pity, grieving for the harms of the world and for the things that failed of fulfillment. So great was her ruth, it is said that she could not endure to the end of the music. Therefore, she has not the hope of Manway. He is more far-seeing, but pity is the heart of Nienna. We're almost there with Nienna. Nienna has already undergone an enormous transformation. Nienna was the queen of the underworld. She was sort of like Persephone in the original version, back in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, she was the dark lady of night uh, before. Um, she has already changed significantly, right? She's not yet taken her final step. Most of the elements are there, rich in memory, farsighted, perceiving more of how this theme should unfold than most of the rest of them do. Not being jovial, right? Um, being associated primarily with pity, and grieving for the harms of the world. Um, the primary element, uh, the primary element that we don't yet see associated with her is hope. Right? Hope. 
it's there, right? It's alluded to. Distance from her. She has not the hope of Manway. Um, yeah, yeah. It's almost like that last step. It's like we can see it really. Tolkien doesn't see it yet, clearly, right? But knowing the step that he's going to make, we can see. We can see it's, it's right there, right? It's just right there in front of him. And once he takes that last concept, this already is, an, is, is Nienna is already now growing into a remarkable mythological figure, right? Remarkable mythological figure. Um, with her grief and her pity, right? So great was her Ruth. Uh, and Rachel and Josiah both at almost exactly the same time were commenting on, uh, on Ruth, right? Um, Ruth is just the Middle English word for pity. It's, a, it's, it's, it's the same word, essentially. Um, uh, so great was her Ruth that she could not endure to the end of the music. Um, she was overwhelmed by her pity. Um, so yes, the word ruthless literally is the same word as pitiless. Um, it tends to be used as a synonym for merciless, right? Uh, to be ruthless is to be merciless, uh, which is very closely related, but not a hundred percent identical to pitiless, right? Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. And it's, Ironic, I do think, that ruthless, the negative version of it is the only word that we still use in modern English, right? Ruth is such a wonderful word. Um, but, um, yeah, Veronica, Niana is like the Virgin Mary who grieves for the state of the world. I think we can feel some echoes there, absolutely. Um, uh, but not hope yet. And when he combines those two, and that's why, Cecilia, exactly as you say, we will get not only pity, but wisdom, right? Uh, pity plus hope equals wisdom, right? And that's uh, uh, what we, we already get the some sense of her wisdom, right? Her understanding, her farsightedness and her understanding of the music. Um, but uh, yes, Christopher, I would be gruntled. I would be more gruntled if we would use uh, Ruth more. I sure would. I sure would. Um, though I can't promise that I would be more uh, kempt uh, or sheveled, uh, frankly, either one. Um, but uh, anyway, <laughs> enough of that. Um, back to Melkor. Now, Orame dearly loved all the works of Yavanna, and he was ever ready to do her bidding. And for this reason, and because he desired at whiles to ride in forests greater and wider than the friths of Valinor, he would often come also to Middle-earth, and there go a-hunting under the stars. Then his white horse, Nahar, shone like silver in the shadows, and the sleeping earth trembled at the beat of his golden hooves. And Orame would blow his mighty horn, whereat the mountains shook, and things of evil fled away. But Melkor quailed in Utumno, and dared not venture forth. For it is said that even as his malice grew and the strength of his hatred, so the heart of Melkor failed, and with all his knowledge and his might and his many servants he became craven, giving battle only to those of little strength, tormenting the weak, and trusting ever to his slaves and creatures to do his evil work. Yet ever his dominion spread southward over Middle-earth, 
For even as Orame passed the servants of Mel- for even as Orame passed, the servants of Melkor would gather again, and the earth was full of shadows and deceit. Okay. Um, Oh, yeah, sorry, good. Josiah pointed out before we left Nienna that on the flip side, uh, he says, I do think it's significant that his first impulse is to attach hope to Manway, the Vala characterized as far-seeing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, I agree. Um, Good, sorry, Jennifer and uh, Carita, I had meant to come back to your point, too. Uh, Both were commenting on... um, uh, Sorry, inevitably drawn back to Nienna. Um... Uh, her grieving for the harms of the world and for the things that failed of fulfillment. That is a very striking element. I agree. Um, Remember what we were talking about, about fate and free will, right? And providence. Um, It's clear that the music is not, it, it might be as fate, but it is not simply fate, right? Because Nienna can see some things that should have been and yet which are not those things which fail of their fulfillment and which she grieves over, right? So that's sort of an interesting point. Now, Karita, I agree. Frith does also is a word that deserves a comeback. Um, And if we combine this sentence, this use of the word frith, with the previous use of the, with the frith in fields, uh, which were watered uh, by the dews of Laurelin and Telperion, um, we can begin to see, right, Frith and fields, the fields were like the cultivated fields, whereas the frith, uh, we, the forests greater and wider than the friths of Valinor, right? Um, so the, the friths are like the wild, the uncultivated landscape, right? The uncultivated fields. Um, okay. Anyway, um, yeah, Karina is sort of linking that. She's thinking about Nana grieving about things that should have been good, which is different than mourning over things that are bad. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you that this does seem to be in that general direction of nothing being evil in the beginning, right? That um, all that is harmful, all that is evil, all that is tragic is ultimately all of those things are tragic stories and those are the things that's why Nienna is moved not to rejection right uh not to disdain right but to pity right everything even the wicked are pitiable and of course you could say the pitiable the the the, the wicked are the most pitiable of all right it's all in Boethius. but anyway um uh, yes, Nancy, exactly. The verb uh, form of Ruth is rue, which we still use in a very limited and kind of weird sense, right? Uh, yeah, like you will rue the day, um, which is a little bit odd. But anyway, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, not exactly. It's drifting as you can see there from its root in the concept of pity, right? Not totally separate from it, but drifting uh, towards regret, right? Um, yeah, exactly. exactly. Just exactly the word that John 
uh, Moss used, drifting towards regret. Uh, but anyway, okay, sorry. Melkor, Melkor. So the heart of Melkor failed, and with all his knowledge and his might and his many servants, he became craven, giving battle only to those of little strength, tormenting the weak, and trusting ever to his slaves and creatures to do his evil work. This kind of thing fits with what we were told of Melko in the earlier versions of the mythology. But of course, as we've already pointed out back then, Melko was a little bit more Loki-esque, right? Like the prank he pulled on the rest of the Valar with the whole um, making the lamp stands out of ice business that we talked about before. Um, and there was always something of the sort of like wild and unrestrained uh, trickster. Uh, not that he would... Again, it's not that that was a full description of his character, but there were always still elements of that uh, in Melko, especially in the earlier stages of Melko's career back in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, this is different. With all his knowledge and his might and his many servants, he became craven. Again, that emphasis on his fall, right? Checking in on the progress of the fall of Melkor here. Right? And we see how he's not only been morally corrupted in his moral corruption, he has been lessened. Right? He's not only falling, he's decreasing. Decreasing himself. His own choices are decreasing him. Right? And it's another example, it seems to me, of a way in which if we think about it from the chronology, not of Middle-earth, uh, you know, not of Arda, but from the chronology of Tolkien's writing, right, the external chronology, it's not Sauron who follows in the footsteps of Morgoth on the path down into the void, but Melkor who follows in the footsteps of Sauron. Because this... Becoming craven, giving battle only to those of little strength, tormenting the weak, and trusting ever to his slaves and creatures to do his evil work. Sounds a lot like Sauron, right? Think about that conversation between Denethor and Gandalf and, uh, and, and uh, Pippin, right, in Minas Tirith, about leading from the back uh, and all that kind of thing, right? And how the, you know, that reviewing moment, which I think gets too little emphasis, in my opinion... Um, when Gandalf says to Denethor, one has come whom I feared, and Pippin says, not the Dark Lord, right? Pippin imagining that's endgame, right? Oh, man, like game over if Sauron himself has come to take the field. And Denethor laughs at him, right? Not yet. Um, Pippin is assuming that Sauron is the big boss, right? That he's the worst of the foes who could possibly come. And Denethor's like, no, man, you got to understand. That's not how it works, right? Grow up. Um, and yeah, it applies to Saruman also. Um, both Saruman and Sauron have already embodied this particular trend. There was, I don't remember any reference to anything like this exactly in the earlier uh, mythologies. Again, we can see him kind of de developing this concept. All right. Now Varda took the light that issued from Talperion and was stored in Valinor, and she made stars newer and brighter. And many other of the ancient stars she gathered together and set as signs in the heavens of Arda. The greatest of these was Menel Makar, the swordsman of the sky. 
This, it is said, was a sign of Turin Turambar, who should come into the world, and a foreshadowing of the last battle that shall be at the end of days. Holy crap, I had forgotten about this passage completely, right? It's still there. For crying out loud, in his heart of hearts, Tolkien is still in the 50s, imagining Turin Turambar to be the one who's going to strike down Morgoth at the Dagor Daggeroth with his black sword, right? Unbelievable. That is still there. The only time that story is mentioned, like explicitly told in some sense, uh, is in the apocalypse uh, at the end of in, in, in the Quentin Older Inwa back from 1930, right? Ages ago. And he never retells the story of the Dagor Daggeroth. None of the rest of the Silmarillion stuff gets there explicitly. Um, but there it is. It's still there. I take this as very clear evidence that he might not be including it, but that's still canon uh, in Tolkien's head. Um, uh, amazing. 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 You can't keep the Master of Doom down. <laughs> Josiah, I agree. Um, and uh, um, Caden is suggesting that uh, even the reference to the last battle in the day of doom, you know, that's obviously generally applicable, but Cade and I agree. I mean, when you have, when you keep this in mind, right. And you're thinking like Turambar, master of doom, day of doom in the last battle. Like, yeah, it's still the, uh, you know, it's still, still works, right. Still, um, perhaps potentially visible, but, um, yeah. Oh man, this, that paragraph knocked me out of my chair when I was prepping for class because I utterly forgot that that was still in that that was in the annals. Um, I, this is why I have so loved reading through these books chapter by chapter with you guys. It is like forcing me to be more thorough in my reading of the history of Middle Earth than I've ever been before. There are so many connections that I've forgotten or didn't make. Uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, okay, let's keep going. Just couldn't pass over that. Now, the orcs. Get to the orcs is probably the last thing we'll be able to do tonight. But of those hapless who were ensnared by Melkor, little is known of a certainty. That is, of the elves, of course, by Quisianen. For who of the living hath descended into the pits of Utumno, or hath explored the darkness of the councils of Melkor? Yet this is held true by the wise of Arisea, that all those of the Quendi that came into the hands of Melkor Erotumna was broken, were put there in prison, and by slow arts of cruelty and wickedness were corrupted and enslaved. Thus did Melkor breed the hideous race of the Orkor, in envy and mockery of the Eldar, of whom they were afterwards the bitterest foes. For the Orkor had life and multiplied after the manner of the children of Iluvatar, and naught that had life of its own, nor the semblance thereof, could ever Melkor make since his rebellion in the Ainuindale before the beginning. So say the wise. And deep in their dark hearts, the Orkor loathed the master whom they served in fear, the maker only of their misery. This, maybe, was the vilest deed of Melkor and the most hateful to Eru. Now, again, those of you who know the Silmarillion well will recognize this passage, right? This is the bit that Christopher chose to include as the explanation of the origin of orcs. 
almost word for word in the published Silmarillion. Um, my subtitle, of course, for this slide uh, is recalling the old version, right? I call this slime not included uh, because, of course, everybody knows that slime was originally one of the ingredients in all of the pre-Lord of the Rings material, including the 1937 Quenta, orcs were indeed manufactured from scratch by Melkor. Slime being one of the primary ingredients of orcs. Um, so that that's a huge change, right? And one of the clearest places, again, when we Think about this new assertion, new assertion made explicit in those several passages that we alluded to before from the Lord of the Rings, right? Post Lord of the Rings, there's no going back. You can't go back to making orcs out of slime and stone and hatred, I think, though, again, he he left out the exact ingredient proportions so that we wouldn't be able to make orcs ourselves, right? Don't try this at home. Um, but... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Christopher, this is already, the concept is seeded in the Lord of the Rings by Treebeard, right? Um, uh, saying that trolls were to ents as orcs were to elves. Yes, exactly. It's a passage that Tony was alluding to earlier on. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, so... Huge change. Huge change. Now, earlier, I cited this as an example of one of those places, one of the biggest places, where the two things that Tolkien has shown himself committed to, the continuation, even the deepening of his mythology, on the one hand, and his answering of the causal questions, right? And fleshing out, making a consistent story that fits with the Lord of the Rings um, and is a fitting and consistent backdrop, historical backdrop to the Lord of the Rings. Um, I said there are several places in the, where those two things just kind of come into conflict and he has a really hard time with them. And I cited this as an example. Why? Do you see why? What's the problem here? I mean, this seems like a good solution. Okay, so he can't create anymore. So he can't whip up orcs from scratch anymore. He has to twist and corrupt elves instead. Okay. What's the problem? What's the problem? Are orcs still immortal? Good question. Don't know. Do orcs die of old age? Don't know. Easy enough to say they rarely get a chance. But yeah, no clue. Exactly. St yes, yes. Um, Stephen and Sharon. Stephen is asking the question, can orcs be redeemed? Look at that last, not last sentence, that penultimate sentence. And deep in their dark hearts, the orcor loathed the master whom they served in fear the maker only of their misery. They're miserable. They live in fear and misery 
oppressed and enslaved by their master, whom they themselves hate. Shouldn't, therefore, the appropriate response to that be, let's free the orcs? Right? Let's, let's liberate them? Right? Um... What's he not willing to let go of? I agree with Sharon. What he's not willing to let go of is killing orcs with abandon. Right? That's throughout the Lord of the Rings. Think of the orc counting contest. Think of Aragorn's words to Sam when he's bandaging his forehead after they get out of Moria. Right? Um, Talking about the slaying of his first orc. Right, uh, for instance, I mean, there's the ruthless, to use the old word, the ruthless extermination of orcs in Middle Earth. This solves the creation ex nihilo problem, right? But it creates a problem that was not there before. As I said, right up until The Lord of the Rings was written, um, I honestly think that it's The Lord of the Rings that creates this problem. Um, because, again, 19, the 1937 Quenta, orcs are still being generated from scratch. That is to say, if it sounds like orcs don't count, you know, as living creatures... That, like, when you're killing orcs, it's not even like killing a creature. Like, that killing an orc and killing a human. It's, like, two fundamentally different acts, right? I mean, there's there's no moral connection between those two. There are many places in The Lord of the Rings which almost imply that, right? Which seem to suggest that. Um, and that, of course, is a natural extension of the old story. If orcs are indeed just more like uh, automata, right? Just animated mud, rock, and slime animated by the hatred and violence and cruelty of Morgoth, right? He instills them with his anger, his hatred, and his cruelty, uh, builds them up out of rock, mud, and slime, and sets them loose on the world, right? Yeah, like... Squashing them. It's not even like killing vermin, John. At least vermin are like, you know, like insects and rodents and things are still creatures of Yavanna, right? But these are not only not, the original orcs were not only not living creatures, they were like abominations, mockeries of living creatures, mockeries in a much more um, thoroughgoing sense, right? Exactly. They were more like golems, they were spawned. Um, and so in that case, if that's what orcs are, really, that's why their blood is black, too. They don't bleed, you know, red blood, like it seems pretty much everybody else does, right? They, they, they're, they're not... So in The Lord of the Rings, again, that was the origin of orcs. That's what orcs are in 1937 when Tolkien begins writing The Lord of the Rings. And he seems never to have deviated from that in his 
writing about orcs throughout the Lord of the Rings story. And yet, while writing the Lord of the Rings story, at the same time, this other theological premise was growing and he was beginning to state clearly, evil cannot create, it can only corrupt. That is to say, he was working, he decided to commit to a much more thoroughly Augustinian theology uh, for which that old idea, the idea of the orcs being created, orcs which could procreate, the orcs could, right? But that doesn't change the fact that they're still fundamentally not even truly biological creatures in the old versions. Um, so I, I mean, there's a way in which killing orcs, I don't even know what to compare it to. It's not even like breaking rocks. Uh, you know, I, it, I mean, there was, there is no parallel that I can think of to the slaying of orcs. Like, the non-moral consequence of slaying and how slaughtering as many of them as you could is simply a virtue, right? I mean, it's like an accomplishment to have not the faintest moral qualm about in the old version. But now, ho oh, ho, deep in their dark hearts, the Orcor loathed the master whom they served in fear, the maker only of their misery. Oh man, I got problems aplenty now, right? Now, how can we talk about orcs that way? How can we treat orcs that way anymore, knowing that they are at least the distant descendants of people who have been culturally, generationally enslaved in fear and misery? It's uh, tough. It's, I think, like slaying droids in Star Trek is, or sorry, in Star Wars is probably the closest thing I can think of. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna raise that, but then I'm like, I don't know that I want to go in the whole like, uh, you know, because then we're gonna start thinking about data from Star Trek and that, you know, like uh, that and the artificial intelligence question, and I didn't want to exactly go there, because um, because in my mind, the slaying of orcs in Tolkien's old mythology is much more straightforward than the killing of robots. The question of like the humanity of robots or like the personhood of robots is to me a much more robust philosophical question than the question of the personhood of orcs in Tolkien's old conception. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Alyssa is asking, um, what do I do with uh, the, 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 the line, I would not snare even an orc with a falsehood? Um, yes, I agree, Alyssa. That says more about the speaker than the status of an orc. Exactly. Um, in fact, Alyssa, I take that saying as being 100% consistent with the complete a personality of orcs, right? That is to say, not even an orc, right? So like doing to orcs things that we would consider bad if they were done to anybody else, you know, like slaughtering them, right? Uh, but even granting that, I would not snare even an orc with a falsehood, right? Because again, that would be like my... That would say something about me. That would say something about my methods that I'm willing to... So, yeah, I'm not even going to... Like, will, will I slaughter them and decapitate them and celebrate that and, like, you know, uh, 
put up their heads as trophies and and uh, uh, brag about how many I've killed. Uh, yeah, sure, because that doesn't compromise my moral standards. Whereas lying to deceive and ensnare someone else, even an orc, um, uh, would. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, Chris, I would say Aemir's dismounting to fight Ugluk on foot, which does sound like showing honor towards a foe. I would say the same thing, honestly, that it says more about Aemir's pride in himself than it does his respect for Ugluk. I don't think he does it for Ugluk's sake. I think he does it because he's wanting to be an example to his men and say, like, uh, I'm going to... I'm not going to take an unfair advantage even over an orc because this is how you do it right, basically. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so, do they go to Mandos when they die? Absolutely. I mean... For a little bit, right? For like several minutes, <laughs> this seems, this passage seems like a great solution to the problem. Okay, evil cannot create, it can only corrupt. So, no problem. Corrupted elves. He takes the elves and he twists them and corrupts them and dominates their wills and renders them evil. Uh, hey presto, orcs. But then you get a. But there's no answer to questions like, do orcs have free will? Do orcs go to Mandos? What happens to the. I mean, presumably, no matter what uh, slow arts of cruelty and wickedness Morgoth employed, he does not have the power to change the gifts of Iluvatar. Right? That's why I have to assume orcs are immortal. How could we argue otherwise? I mean, like, you'd have to present some pretty darn strong evidence to explain why they're not. None of the Valar can take that away from elves, can they? How could Melkor possibly control what comes of the souls of these imprisoned and tortured elves after they die? Surely, if you were one of the elves in question who is being subjected to the slow arts of cruelty and wickedness and thus corrupted and enslaved by Morgoth, if you were one of those elves captured by the shores of Quivianon and hauled off to Atumno and had that done to you, you could at least comfort yourself by saying, uh, when my body and spirit are separated by suffering and death, my spirit shall at least go to... Ma will then be set free from the control of Morgoth and will go to Mandos and I can find peace again. Right? Right? Are you telling me that that wasn't so? That Morgoth could actually command and control even the very souls of these elves? I mean, it's like, again, it's... It's... This is a great solution until you think more about it, and then it ceases to be, right? And 
this there is no getting around this dilemma, right? This solution, the corrupted elf solution, fits with the fundamental theology that he's now committed to, the cannot create theology. But again, Tolkien painted himself in a corner in The Lord of the Rings because he maintained the attitude of treating orcs like automata all the way through to the end while the theology and by the time he now comes and says I've got to reconcile things with that with that theology it's too late it's too late it's all there already he'd have to rewrite not only the Silmarillion but the Lord of the Rings to make that all work um yeah it's um tough it's uh, this that's why this is one of the big problems one of the big problems um and Tolkien doesn't solve it Tolkien doesn't solve it um Rachel let me think for a second let me think for a second about the uh uh, Rachel, sorry, Rachel's asking about the uh, Uruk High. Um, sorry, what I'm thinking here, let me think out loud more. Uh, I'm asking myself, I'm remembering, of course, the passage, and it's Treebeard's words, right? The Treebeard passage when he is the one who is speculating that the Uruk High are the result of the intermingling of the species, uh, like the sexual intermingling um, of orcs and men, the races of orcs and men. And Treebeard calls this a black evil, right? Um, in so, oh, let us count the ways in which that is a black evil. But Rachel, so here's what I'm thinking. Where in this progress, like in the progress of Tolkien's theological decisions, right, did that passage come? The Treebeard, that passage is part of Book 3, Chapter 4, which is one of those passages which, as we saw in, I believe it was the Treason of Isengard, um, emerged almost totally. Like when he figured out who Treebeard was, and Merry and Pippin meet Treebeard um, at the beginning of that chapter. Christopher says that that chapter almost word for word in its final state flowed in the very first draft. Like he just like all of that stuff, everything that Treebeard says just came out right then. And that was pretty early. That was pretty early. That was well before the stairs of Kirathongol. I am pretty sure it was also before Elrond was given the line about, um, for nothing was evil in the beginning, even Sauron was not so. I mean, that was back in the Council of Elrond, but I'm pretty sure he hadn't said that at the Council of Elrond yet by the time that Tolkien wrote that. So my, um, my thought, then, uh, is that when he wrote that passage, the Treebeard chapter, and Treebeard is speculating about... So, I'm trying to... If you see what you see what I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out what was what conception was likely in Tolkien's head at the time that he wrote that chapter. And I 
believe that the evidence suggests that the orcs as golems concept was still in his mind then. So therefore, the blending of the race of orcs and men that orcs reproduce is clear. Um, even in the golem stages, like that was that was part of what Morgoth did when he did his little act of creation slash subcreation, slightly more than subcreation uh, of the orcs um, in mockery of elves. Um, but orcs were a mockery of elves originally, kind of like the orc head on the statue of the king at the crossroads was a mockery, right? Um, like literally something set up in order to mock them. Um, that's why he shaped the orcs as he did to kind of look like elves, but twisted elves. Um, cruel jokes of elves. Anyway, okay. Well, I mean, I get distracted. If that's what Tolkien was thinking when Treebeard said that, then the blending of the race of orcs and men would mean the joining of one of the of the children of, of one of the peoples of the children of Iluvatar to these hideous constructs, this construct race of Morgoths. And so that introduces really a whole new dimension in which that is a black evil for Saruman to have done, to have undertaken. Um, and so, yes, exactly, Stephen, the Urukai would therefore be kind of like cyborgs, almost, almost in some ways. Um, uh, it does mean that they're genetically compatible, Jennifer, absolutely, though genetics, not exactly something that Tolkien can, was showed great, I mean, we like to talk about in those terms now, uh, genetically compatible, that's not Tolkien's vocabulary, right? Uh, and so we should be a little careful thinking in genetic terms, because again, that's not his idiom there. But um, um, yeah, Matt is asking, do the orc high have to make a choice which race they belong to, men or orc? Uh, no, I think they don't get a choice, right? Um, but um, yeah, yeah, Jennifer is remembering, of course, the Genesis 6 story of the of the Nephilim, uh, you know, the, the sons of God and the daughters of men, which seemed to be a black evil and to precipitate the flood, uh, in part. Um, is there an element of that there with the uruk Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, oh, hang on a second, Jennifer. How do... What happens? No, we even get a flood, don't we? Anyway, sorry. Um, uh, yeah. But, Veronica, I agree. Half-orcs are a pretty disturbing concept. Absolutely. Absolutely. I say it's a black evil in many different ways. Um, uh, yeah, good. Um, okay. I think I'm going to end not because I've come to a brilliant rhetorical climax, but because we've passed run out of time and, uh, uh, I'm starting to twitch towards advancing to the next slide, which I should totally not do. So, um, uh, let's stop there. And um, let's um, uh, let's stop there, and let's uh, uh, pick up 
with the annals next time. Um, last week I said go ahead and read the next section of the annals. I'm not going to say that this week. Don't read the next section because it shall be my ambition to finish the annals next week. Um, uh, so we'll try to get through section six uh, of the annals, um, th this this draft of the annals, and then we'll move on to uh, to the next bit um, uh, the week after that. All right. Can we talk about Shagrat and Gorbag next week, Chris? No. <laughs> no, we can't. I don't want to talk about Shagrat and Gorbag. And the reason I don't want to talk about Shagrat and Gorbag is that in order to talk about Shagrat and Gorbag, we've got to go back and look at the text, right? We, we, only through a close reading of the text of the conversation of Shagrat and Gorbag can we really have enough data to work with. And I don't want to go there. That's, that's too much of a, of a side note. We'll get there in exploring the Lord of the Rings. As long as... Uh, we survive another 10, 15 years, we'll get there. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, exactly, Josiah. In a couple of decades, we're all over that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, like, we, I'd, I'd have to, we, we'd have to look at the text. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. So that's, that's, so no, I'm not talking about Shagrat and Gorbag. Um, all right, Chris, just to please you, let me say one sentence about Shagrat and Gorbag. I think in Shagrat and Gorbag, we do see Tolkien beginning to struggle with the question. Remember, that's right after the Stairs of Kirathungal. Right after the Stairs of Kirathungal, where he has just reasserted forcefully in relation to orcs themselves, right? That noth that evil cannot create, it can only corrupt. And then right away, as the first thing we get after Shelob is a conversation between two orcs in which we see some evidence that he is thinking of them as free agents in some sense, right? He is imagining for really one of the first times orcs as being more, uh, perhaps. Um, certainly the clearest example that we get of that. And it comes after. He's just made that declaration. So if I would characterize from a distance without looking at the text the conversation of Shagarat and Gorbag in any way, I would characterize it as one of the places where he's beginning to struggle with this, but he still doesn't work it out. And he certainly doesn't backwork it into the rest of the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, so I don't see that passage as a solution to the problem, but as indicating that he's thinking about the problem, right? Okay. Thank you. I'm done. Not talking about them anymore, but I, but I totally agree. It's a really, really important and relevant point. It's just a little beyond the scope of what we have here. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Good night. I will see you guys uh, next week as we finish the Annals of Amon. And, of course, more stuff coming up now. We've got uh, Session 2 of Film Film coming up tomorrow night, Griffith on Friday, and then back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings on Tuesday. Lots of stuff going on. Uh, thanks, everybody. And I will see you guys sooner or later, somewhere or other. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.